welcome to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. Just a housekeeping thing, the book that I've written is available on Amazon and maybe other places by the time the podcast is listened. I encourage you to go to Amazon and buy it. The Kindle version is live now. The paperback version will be available on the 21st of September. Some of you that have purchased the Kindle have left some reviews on Amazon. Appreciate that and encourage more to do that. I think that helps more people connect with the book. Um, my guest on today's podcast is my friend Jack Hadley. Welcome to the podcast, Jack. Hey, thank you, Richard. By way of introduction, um, and then I'll let Jack make sure I got most of this right. Um, Jack is a father of a gay son, so he'll be talking as an active LDS father of a gay son who was married to his husband in July of 2020. So um, Jack has been on this road for about five years since his son Parker came out, and we'll just be talking about how to navigate this road, at least how they're doing it in their family. And I have will reference a blog that Jack has written that is very helpful, and I want more people to connect with the blog. Jack um, grew up in Southern California. He's in his early 60s. It's rare I have a podcast guest that's actually a year or two older than me, but Jack is, but he looks younger. Um, he is, as I mentioned, active LDS, serves in a local calling, served a mission to Taiwan. He spent 40 years as an entrepreneur um, in, a, in that field. He's been an adjunct professor at BYU, um, really a social media expert. But we're not going to talk much about either of our careers, um, what we do professionally in this podcast. Um, we're just going to talk about Jack's experience um, being a father um, of a gay son and some of the things that he's um, learned and the things that we'd like to share with our listeners. Is that okay for an introduction, Jack? That's perfect. Thanks, Richard. <laughs> um, we both have kind of offered prayers throughout the day that um, the things that you hear from Jack on the podcast will be helpful for you. So we um, know this is a complicated space and both of us are trying to do the very best job we can to talk about this, but we feel it's important to talk about it. Introduce um, your family to us, Jack. How many kids you have? Do you have grandkids? And where does your gay son fit into the range of kids? So we have five children. Uh, our oldest is a girl, youngest is a girl, and we have three boys in the middle. And Parker, uh, my gay son, is our third boy. He's uh, 27 years old. And we have uh, six, let's see, um, <laughs> five or six grandchildren and, and two more on the way. We have twins. Uh, my son, oldest son, has twins on the way in a couple of months. So we'll, I think we'll be at seven or eight grandkids soon. That is great. That's <laughs> awesome. Um, and twins are really exciting. So that's that's really exciting news at the Hadley home. <laughs> Talk about, you know, Parker Rahiri could tell his own story, but tell us about when did Parker come out to you? So Parker... Um, Parker sat down with us about four or five years ago, a couple of years after he returned from his missionary service in Nova Scotia and sat down uh, one day with my wife and me and let us know that he was gay. And my, I think my wife and I kind of knew before he told us that he was, but we waited for him to talk about it. Um, so we didn't bring it up, but it's probably been four or five years ago that he he talked to us about it at first. 
knowing, and this is helpful for other parents, do you have any advice for parents that suspect maybe a high school age kid is gay, lesbian, or transgender? Do you have any advice for them? Um, it sounds like you didn't sort of out him or force the issue. No, we didn't. And uh, I, I think uh, if I were to offer advice, it's probably to let let people do that, let your children do that on their on their timeline. Um, because some are ready at certain times and some I don't think are ready at certain times. And even if you suspect that, I think my advice would be to let them uh, initiate that discussion. Knowing in the back of your mind that you might have a gay son, were you, you and your wife doing anything to sort of create a feeling of safety? Were you talking about this topic at all or were you just, or not? We really didn't did not talk about it. And I don't think we were alarmed that that might be a possibility. Um, but even between my wife and I, we really didn't talk about it very often. Parker dated uh, girls in high school. And so we didn't really know um, in high school. We suspected he might be in high school, but we never really thought much about it, frankly. And so we knew it would kind of work itself out, and we didn't worry about it too much, frankly. Most parents would be pretty alarmed if they had an LGBTQ child. Why weren't you alarmed? I don't know that we we were not, you're right, we were not alarmed, but certainly as LDS parents, you have this kind of um, uh, scenario in your mind about your family and your children, and they're going to grow up and get married, and then it's all going to be as we typically think it's going to be. And so I think while we, we weren't alarmed, we were probably concerned just because I didn't understand what his path might be. If he were gay, what does that mean? And I think uh, when you're a parent and you're not sure about that, and before you really spend a lot of time thinking about it, it it's a scary thought just because you're not sure of what it will mean for your child. You want your child to be happy and to have all the blessings that we believe in as LDS folks. Um, so you're a little unsure of what, if that is the case, what that means for his path. I think that was our, that was maybe the one worry that we had. That's honest. Tell us about Parker. What? Tell us some. Um what he does professionally or his education background and just introduce Parker to our listeners a little bit. Parker is an amazingly talented, gifted, creative soul and spirit. He graduated uh, through the ad program at BYU and uh, is a super creative videographer. Um, he works as a videographer now. After he got out of BYU, he got a great job at this really hot ad agency in Los Angeles worked there for a couple years and was kind of the envy of, of his peers because he got this great offer at this great agency. Um, he found that the lifestyle in Los Angeles just didn't align with, uh, with his goals and kind of with his spirit. And so uh, he came back to Utah. And, but he's been working in ad agencies and creative, in the creative field for all of his short career. That's great. Sounds like a great young man. He's a good kid. And I'm glad you're close with him. Talk about when Parker came out, um, was there a conversation about his path forward 
as a gay Latter-day Saint, these different options? And did Parker have a pretty good feeling of what path he might go on, or was it? did that come later? I think that, as I recall, I think he was pretty clear about a couple of things. And I, I remember him vaguely. I, rem- I don't remember the exact words he used, but I know that he said that kind of the, the two... The two options that the church sort of puts out there, um, well, I shouldn't say sort of, the two options that the church puts out there, uh, one, which is celibacy, and two is entering into a heterosexual marriage anyway, that that neither of those two were going to be options for him. Um, I remember him clearly saying, hey, Dad, I'm not the kind of guy that can live alone for the rest of my life. I just, I just can't do that. And it just doesn't align with my personality and my spirit. And it would be dishonest for me to even consider a, a heterosexual marriage. So um, I, knew that, I knew that those two were probably not going to be options. I don't know that he was clear about what his, what his plan was, and I don't know that he knew that at the time, but I think he knew what his plan was not going to be. Anyway, how do you process that as a Latter-day Saint father? Um, you've got a son who it seems like his path then is not going to be within the teachings of our church. And maybe a follow-up question, is there anything you'd say now to yourself five years ago, now that you've been on this road five years, that you would say? Um, or are you kind of in the same space anyway? Hmm. Um. I think that um, not being sure what his plans were going to be, that's kind of when I started educating myself better on this space that we're all in, or maybe a lot of your listeners are in. And that is that space of how, what does that mean for, for your family in terms of, of, um, of, of long-term relationships. And my wife and I really felt like that even if um, pursuing a same-sex relationship and maybe one day uh, same-sex marriage, that that, in fact, may be uh, the healthiest thing for Parker, uh, just for his emotional health, his physical health, his spiritual health, um, knowing his personality and being able to be in a trusted um, relationship long term, we've started to feel like that might be the very best thing for him, even though we know that that puts him at odds with with church doctrine or with church teachings. So I don't know that my wife and I really worried about it too much, frankly. I, I was more worried that if he did end up in a, in a same-sex relationship, that it would be with, with somebody who maybe didn't have the the background that Parker had, and especially when he was living in Los Angeles, because you know I thought, well, he's probably not around a lot of uh, LGBTQ people that grew up LDS. Um, but w- when he came back from Los Angeles, uh, he had already had a relationship with Alex, who's now his husband, and Alex is a wonderful, beautiful human being who actually grew up LDS as well. And so when, when my wife and I thought about him having a long-term relationship with someone who had a similar background as his, 
honestly, that was really comforting to us because we felt like there's, there's a lot better chance that they'll have a, a, a great relationship because they have similar background and, and because there was a lot of trust uh, between them. So um, I don't know if that answered it your does, question or not. Does. It's really good. And, um, I'm in a Facebook group. I think you're in the same Facebook group. It's LDS Parents with LGBTQ Kids. And one of the real, the real discussions that happens there is, okay, my kid is dating and I recognize this is the reality of our family situation, and I'm really worried that it's hard to do that space responsibly and hard to find um, the kind of person you want your child to be happy with. And it's obviously something we don't talk about at church, how to do that path. But a lot of parents have a lot of fear, and they spend a lot of time in prayer praying that their child will, f if this is the reality of their path, that they'll do that path really thoughtful and and that the right person will come in their life that helps them be the person they want to be. Um, yeah, I, I, mentioned, I mentioned something about that in this little essay that I wrote uh, because I think that is a, a big concern. If uh, Shortly after Parker came out to me, we, we've, well, not shortly after, but continually, we've had lots of discussions over the last three or four years. And uh, people my age kind of grew up with this stereotypical idea that the LGBTQ lifestyle is full of promiscuity and, you know, such things. And so uh, Parker kind of confirmed to me after a couple of years after he had come out that that, that is, in fact, kind of a big part of that world. And it just didn't align with with him, with his personality and with his spirit. And so maybe that was one of the biggest fears that I had, and, and I kind of speak for my wife, I think she had the same fear, is that, is that being part of that environment would be hard for him and, and might lead to a less than happy and fulfilled life. And so when he started seriously dating Alex, and we got to know Alex and we knew his background and just what a sweet guy he is, um, and that they had all these things in common, it became uh, much, it brought a lot of peace, actually, to, to our family um, because of that, they had that type of relationship. That's pretty thoughtful. Um, I'm struck that Parker is talking to you, um, and it's a credit to you and your wife that, you know, that he is continuing to talk to you, and he probably didn't talk to you every day about everything going in his life, but it sounded like you knew enough about what was going on that he was sharing, you know, with you he was dating and who he was dating and, and the experiences he was having. And I just think as parents, we want our kids to feel safe to open up to us so we can help them to make the very best decisions they can um, versus you could have you know, cut the communication off because he was pursuing a path outside the teachings of the church. But I love the way you kept the family circle together and kept the communication open. And I think that then helps Parker make better decisions. Thoughts on that, Jack? No, I think you're exactly right. And I, I know probably for some of your listeners who are kind of on this road, it, it's hard sometimes to think about that because it there's so much... Um, you know, anxiety when it comes to the the church's position and where your where you where your son or daughter is headed, 
and, and that worries you. But I think that, in my opinion, I think the Lord knows all, and he's going to make it all right, and it's just your job to keep being mom and dad and just keep loving them and keep talking to them and know that uh, that things, some things are just out of your hands and you just don't worry about it. You just keep loving them. And, and we've, my wife and I have always had that kind of relationship with Parker, and we felt very blessed to have it. How have your other children responded um, to Parker's marriage to Alex? They've all responded very, very lovingly. They all love uh, Alex like crazy. And so we've, we've been blessed to have a lot of support in, in our family. Uh, I know that um, a, a couple of my kids, uh, because they have kids, they've had different dynamics in trying to kind of negotiate this space. <laughs> and so, and I understand that. I mean, when I was young and had a bunch of little kids, I'm sure I would have been thinking the same thing. Like, how do I keep loving my family and my sibling? And yet, how does this align with what I'm teaching my kids? If I'm trying to teach them the, <laughs> the, the doctrines and teachings of the church, like there's so much uh, that doesn't align in those two things. Um, and I think my kids have done a really good job of kind of negotiating that. And um, there's just been a lot of love. And it's honestly because Alex is the kind of person he is, it hasn't been hard to love and accept, <laughs> love and accept Alex. How do you navigate the space um, that you're worried about your eternal family? We, we talk about, you know, our families being together in the next life and that's that's our dream as Latter-day Saint parents. How do you navigate, you know, Parker's eternal salvation or where he'll be in the next life? Or is our family circle in the next life, um, are there going to be empty chairs? How do you handle, how do you navigate that? Yeah, you know, it's funny you bring up that, that um, the, the, the empty chair story, because I seem to hear that all the time um, in circles that kind of talk about this road and this space. And, and honestly, just to be candid, I think the empty chair story should just go away. <laughs> I, I think it's silly. I think it's, I think you're worrying about things that we ought not to be worrying about. Um, I believe, and I talk actually a lot about this in my little essay, I believe that the, the covenant path is an eternal path. And nothing about the timeline changes the path. In other words, just because every person who is in the church doesn't, um, isn't on the path at the same place or taking on the same covenant, covenants in, in the covenant path doesn't mean that one day they won't um, that they'll be denied those those covenants. I mean, we do temple work all the time in the church for people who didn't have the opportunity to enter into all of these covenants during mortal life. And so I think, for me, I just feel like it's in the Lord's hands. And honestly, I'm not worried about the long-term eternal uh, nature of this whole process or of having my family together. And so... I think I have more faith in that. I really believe the Lord knows what to do and that everything will work out in the end. And I only have one job 
in this life, and that is to love and support my son and that everything else will work out. I love that answer, and it simplifies parenthood. It makes it more doable. I think we can, to control outcomes is pretty hard. Um, our ability to love everybody is certainly within our control. I love that, Jack. Do you ever feel like you've had to choose between the church and supporting your son? Because some people feel that, and sometimes they are made to feel that way by other members or a local leader or the culture of our church. Any thoughts on that? Well, that's really the reason I I started writing this essay about a year ago and why I worked so hard on it for so long. Tell our listeners, we'll do it at the end, but tell our listeners right now where to get to it. Well, it's... It's a little hard to get to because, um, but if you go to uh, to my website, it's just my name, jackhadley.com. If you go there, uh, there's a little link on the page where you can click through and, and read it. But um, the reason I really started that is because, wait, go back to what your I question know was. It's I just, do it. you feel like you ever need to choose between? Oh, yeah. The church and your son or people make you feel like that? Yeah, so I felt, so here's how I felt, and and that's a really good question because I think a lot of parents of LGBTQ children in the church probably get that question. There'll be a well-intentioned ward member or extended family member, an uncle or an aunt or someone who who doesn't have any ill will at all, They but they'll come to you and say, Gosh, you know, we heard that your son, your son's engaged, um, and they're going to have a same-sex marriage coming up. Like, how, how you know, like, ah, like, how how you how you feeling about that? You know, and and I think even if it's not said in that way, I think a lot of parents probably feel like that's on people's minds, no matter how they ask it. And so that's why I felt like I needed to really get in my head my clear position on how I feel and spend the time to write that in a little essay. And so now when somebody asks me that, here's what I usually say. I usually say, I feel great about it. And if you're interested, truly interested in why I feel good about it, I've written a little something that I'd be happy to share with you that explains why I feel the way I feel. Because I think the tendency in the church would be for most members to say, well, he's just saying that because what else do you say? It's your son, and you always love your son, but obviously because he's at odds with the church, it must be a big, big deal for you. I think that's what some people think in the back of their minds. And so I've, I've, that's the reason I wrote this is because to kind of reconcile how I feel with my position um, in, in being an active LDS. Thank you for that. And um, when I stepped in the space, I gradually connected with some parents like you that that I read their blogs or heard their stories, and they were they were the way you are. They were happy um, for their LGBTQ child. They're um, choosing a same-sex marriage. I think a lot of them didn't necessarily invite them down that path or advocate that path. They let their children sort of self-select that path. But when they ended up choosing that path. They recognized from a pragmatic perspective, I like the way you use emotional, physical, you know, all these different parts of making a healthy human happy, healthy, happy human. You recognize that this path 
was the right path, I think. And so you were, you were glad and it was a day of celebration. Is that fair to say? Yeah, very fair to say. And, and I like that you used the word, uh, pragmatic because, um, in my essay, I kind of, I try to separate the, the discussion into two parts. There's the whole side about the biology of LGBTQ and the whole issue, are people born gay? Is it learned behavior? I mean, all of that stuff is one big discussion. And frankly, it kind of bores me to talk about that because nobody really knows. I mean, science is pointing towards uh, very rapidly, seems to be pointing towards that, that people are born gay. This is not learned behavior. And so, but that, that whole space, it's just, it's just doesn't, when you debate that space, there's there's no there's no winners. It's just so my my thought is we just agree to disagree on discussion one for now. But my essay is about discussion number two, which is the pragmatic part of this. Regardless of how you answer that first discussion, for a parent, uh, I think there's only one pragmatic decision to make, and that is, regardless of what it is or how it came to be. What are you going to do now? What's the path moving forward? And I think that as LDS people, um, and I make this point quite often in my essay, I think that we can and should agree to agree on discussion too. Because I don't think it's, I don't think, I think there's really kind of only one, in my opinion, <laughs> I think there's kind of only one option if you don't talk about discussion one and you just talk about moving ahead. And that is to, to love and accept and move ahead and leave the vast majority of this in the Lord's hands. Um, so, And we can all do that. Talk about um, one of the things that some parents, of LD, some LDS parents have that are committed to the church. They hope for changes in the church. Um, they hope that um, there's a place someday for same-sex monogam same-sex couples to participate in a greater way, and and sometimes we are quick to that. If you open up with the hope of a change, sometimes that you know people get really uncomfortable with that. And I've in my book I've tried to use the analogy of tea and coffee as an example. There might be members that actually hope someday that we can drink tea and coffee, but they're willing to obey that and not advocate for changes. But we wouldn't disqualify them from a temple recommend or from church membership if they just hope something changes. So how do you, a lot of LDS parents have hoped that in your case, someday Parker and Alex can more fully participate um, in, the, in the church. Just talk about hope for change and how you navigate that. Yeah, thanks for asking that, um, because hope is a big part of what I wrote about. And this is a very difficult discussion to have, because it, it brings in so many related things uh, when you're LDS. The idea in our LDS culture and, and in, in the church and growing up in the church is that, um, you know, when the prophet speaks, the, the discussion ends. And until the prophet speaks, there really, there really isn't discussion. And yet, I think we can see, and I, I don't say this to jab at the church, it just feels to me like 
over the decades and centuries that the church has been around, that there, there are a, kind of a lot of factors that influence change. And that's not to take away from the value of having a, a living prophet at all. It's, it's more the, I, I, think that, I think that change comes as people um, become softened and learn more and they get more information and do, do cultural norms and stuff have an effect on it? Well, yeah, they do. And, and I think that's okay. I, I don't think in any way by believing that there are more things that affect change in the church, I don't think by believing that you're necessarily saying that, well, uh, the prophet's not important. The prophet brings a, a much-needed perspective to that decision-making process, as do the other general authorities and, um, and the apostles. But I think that change, uh, if we look at throughout history, change comes in many, many different ways. I know that there are those on the outside of the church, those who have left the church, that would say, um, you're, you're crazy to think that because they're never going to change. And certainly, if, if you take some of the apostles' words, the ones that kind of still really dig in their heels, <laughs> you, you would be tempted to say, yeah, you're right. I don't think they'll ever change. But on the other hand, um, President, um, President Nelson is talking a lot lately about a process of restoration, that the church hasn't been completely restored and that we're witnessing a process. So to me, that, that kind of gives me hope. And, and I don't, I'm not going to tell the brethren what to do. I, I'm not going to tell the Lord what to do, obviously. <laughs> but, but to have some hope that, at the very least, the discussion is, is more open. And whether or not that leads to change, uh, I, don't, I'm not, uh, I don't have a pitchfork and a torch, and I'm headed up to the church office building to stand outside and demand change. But I think it's okay to hope for change. And if that's the case, I, I think that's what will happen. You have a wonderful style, Jack. And as I read your essay, I encourage our listeners to read your essay. I think you speak for a lot of people that are deeply committed to church, active, serving, paying tithing, that hope something changes. And I think we need to culturally create a feeling that people that feel that way, as long as they're willing to sort of follow the prophet and and follow current teachings, they don't feel like second-class citizens or they don't feel like they're not welcome because we'll lose them. And we've lost a lot of people um, because they're open with hope, their hopes for possible changes down the road. And it shouldn't be a purity test to me that we all not only follow the same rules but have the same hope about future rules as a way, as a way to create a purity test for if you're a faithful Latter-day Saint. Yeah, and that's a, that, again, is a hard space because there are certainly, um, the, there are certainly members on the inside of the inside, if you've ever read the, I have. the, the work about being on the edge of the inside I have. by Richard Rohr. Uh, it's Richard Rohr, isn't it? And there was the other, the first author I read was sort of a, I can't remember his name. Yeah, I can't remember either. I was on the Faith Matters uh, website, which, by the way, if you... Um, 
Faith Matters. I think it's faithmatters.org. Yeah. It's a great website. They do great work. They do great work. And I was listening to a podcast where they were talking about this idea of being on the inside of the inside and on the edge of the inside. <laughs> but there are certainly members on the inside of the inside that uh, that that are really, they don't want to talk about this at all. And in fact, I had the unpleasant experience one day in a in a leadership meeting in our ward where one of the good brothers said, you know, um, in my opinion, uh, gay people that gay members of the church who act out love themselves more than they love God. And it's statements like that, that I don't know that there's a place for them in the church. Um, I don't think as good Christian Latter-day Saints, there's a place for that kind of thinking. And so my hope is that that whether or not things change, uh, I think we can hope for change. And and what happens uh, when, when, when you talk about faith, hope, and charity, faith is kind of a prerequisite to having hope, and hope is a prerequisite to charity. And so to develop real charity, whether it's individual charity or charity within the church as an institution, I think it has to come in part from having hope. If you have no hope, it's much more difficult to be charitable. I love that, Jack. I love that. I love all of those words, hope, charity, faith, and your um, insights and how those are connected. Um, yeah, I just, I just recognize there's a lot of faithful Latter-day Saints, the way I frame it up, and I think my listeners may have heard this, and it's in this book, is the church's relationship with its LGBTQ members is like a 40-chapter book, and we're not in chapter 40. And so people say, well, does chapter 40 represent change in doctrine? And I say, I don't know. I say I support our current doctrine, but I, I sort of sometimes give examples of what chapter 40 looks like. And to me, one of the examples is that um, church is equally the balm of Gilead for our straight members and our gay members and their, and our doctrine of all like, all alike unto God. And right now, a lot of our gay members don't have the same experience that our straight members do. And, and a parent doesn't have any fear when they learn their teenager's gay. Right now, most LDS parents feel a great deal of fear about their future in this life and the next life. And to me, that fear is gone in chapter 40. So I just think we've got work to do. And I think most Latter-day Saints would agree we have work to do. We're not at chapter 40. It just feels like an area that... And so the experiences of parents and the blog you've written to me just help develop more empathy and more charity, the things you're teaching. Um, people are hard to hate, close up, move in. And the front of your blog's got a picture of Parker and Alex together. And yeah. I love that you tell us about why you put that picture there <laughs> and the source of that picture, because it just humanizes these two men. Yeah. Well, they're, they're fun loving, fun loving guys. And I, I don't know where that photo was taken, but Parker has this gigantic som sombrero on. Um, but I, I, I also, in, in my little essay, I have some photos from, from their wedding last month. And um, just, it, it was, the wedding was a, was a really great, uh, in, in my feeling is that it was a great family uniting experience. And I don't know that I knew what the wedding 
was going to be like going into it. I was kind of unsure of what what the feeling would be like there. And um, it ended up being a really great family experience with two families. And when they had lots of out-of-town guests that flew in, even with COVID, uh, who flew in uh, to be there. And they, they were married in their the backyard of their home. It was a beautiful, beautiful ceremony. And, uh, and there was just a good family feeling there, frankly. Tell us why you um, officiated at that wedding. Yeah, I did. It was, um, so Parker and Alex came to me about oh, four or five months before the wedding and said, hey, Dad, um, would you consider uh, officiating at the wedding and marrying us? And I said, wow, I'm, I'm honored that, that you would ask me, and I don't know much about that. Um, but it wasn't hard to spend your $39 online and you become <laughs> an ordained minister who is legally, um, can legally perform wedding in Utah. The state of Utah recognizes that. And so um, I, I thought about that for a long time and discussed it with my wife. And, and I just felt like it was the right thing to do. And rather than having a friend of theirs or a justice of the peace or somebody perform that marriage, it felt to me like an opportunity to make the marriage, well, not that I could make the marriage anything, but it was an opportunity to invite a family feeling to the event rather than this is about gay marriage or this, this is a this is a same-sex marriage or whatever, that it wasn't about that. It was about two great people being married and a, it was a great family event. And our family and Alex's family are now joined together and it was about family. And so I felt like that by participating in that way, it would be an opportunity for me to help invite that feeling to the event. I love that. I love the principle. I just think those are the principles that were taught in the church is family. Family is the most important unit of the church. Sorry, most important unit, family unit on the earth. And everything the church is doing is trying to increase the, the strength of families. And I love the process you went, I love that these you know, Parker and Alex asked you to perform the wedding. Um, I think that's awesome. They asked you and that they sensed that that was something you'd consider. And I love the fact you said this isn't about same-sex marriage. This is about family. And my role as a patriarch, that's one of the words you use in your blog, and as a, to, in that role as a father and a patriarch to officiate in that wedding and this is all about family and bringing two families together and supporting these two and the path that they feel is best for them. Yeah, that's how I felt. And, uh, and my, fam my wife and my children were supportive of, of that position. I, would, I appreciated that. And I would hope that we don't, you know, if, if an active LDS father or mother, you know, legally you could perform a wedding as a woman the same way. Sure or a sibling, I hope that we don't, you know, judge people that feel like that's the right thing to do in their family. I hope that one of the things I I hope is we don't lose whole families over this. Parker, you could kind of update us where Parker is from a church standpoint, but 
Why don't you first update us? Is Parker and Alex, are they trying to still attend church, or is that just not really a reality given that they're in a same-sex marriage? It's it's probably not really a, a reality, I think, for them right now. And um, they they both were very active in the church up until about the time that they got engaged. And so what what's nice about Alex and Parker is that they're not bitter. Good. They're not out bashing the church because of its policies or being negative in any way. I think they just kind of feel neutral right now. I, I think that they think that we love what we learned growing up as a church. We love the church, and I think they love God and have testimonies of the gospel of Jesus Christ absolutely in their hearts, and that's a strong part of who they are. But I think that they, like many LGBTQ people, are unsure what the path forward is now with the church. Is there a place for them in the church? And I submit that there there really isn't right now. And so it's a, it's difficult to to be kind of one foot in, one foot out. I, I talk in my essay about a couple of people that I've uh, gotten to know that kind of participate. There's a, a gentleman I know who lives back east who's been married to his husband for many, many years, and they're fairly active in their ward. They're not, quote, members of, uh, you know, they're not official members, but they attend church and they attend the activities, and their bishop invites them to, to do genealogical work, and they work, uh, do things in the ward. Um, or the stake uh, extraction center or whatever. So is there a place? I don't know that there is a place, and I think Parker and Alex uh, don't feel really like there's a place for them to be It's active. a pretty honest answer. Yeah. I agree with that. I think that's an honest answer. And um, so we sometimes we lose whole families um, because they feel judged by their families LDS friends, the way they're supporting their LGBTQ child. Have you felt any of that, or do you talk about that in your essay? Um, just perhaps you feel judged, or you, I, I've always felt we should give you a, an increased measure of support and love as you're doing the very best you can in a, in a pretty complex situation. And the last thing we should do is cause you to feel judged that you're not doing this right. I think I have not I have not felt that, and Good. I have a great uh, ward and a great neighborhood, and I live in Provo, Utah, so all my neighbors are also my ward members, <laughs> and I haven't felt that at all, and I've been just so blessed to be around um, and, and live in a ward where people are, are really open and accepting. However, I do have some friends um, who are in similar situations that live other places in the country where it has been more difficult for them. And I think it's really tragic if a if like you just said if we if we lose a family because um, their support has created a situation where they're not comfortable anymore being in their ward, or maybe they feel like there's some uh, ill will Ill, Ill feelings about them being so supportive, and some of that not to call out any particular general authority's words, <laughs> but there are. As we all know, there are a couple of general authorities that 
um, are really strong in their opinions about this issue. And there's been some things said that would make some members think that a family or parents who support an LGBTQ child ought to be on, on the road to repentance rather than to be supported. And that in making a choice between uh, supporting the, the, the policies of the church or supporting their LGBTQ child, in making that choice that they ought to be making the opposite choice and not supporting their child. There's been things said like that. Agreed. And so if that becomes sort of a standard and, and lots of members feel that way, then I could see that feeling being around a family. And wouldn't it be tragic if that caused a family to, to dismantle or abandon a lot of their faith traditions and all the things that come with being an active member of the church because of that kind of thinking? That would be tragic. That's a good segment, and I just, you know, I just believe we need to extend families like yours, like your Provo community is doing, just an increased measure of love and support um, versus any feeling of judging. And we have created some, you know, members don't know what to do because our church has probably sent mixed messages on this subject. I agree with that, and so members kind of hold back and and that holding back often can have members feel like people are withdrawing from them or they're not asking. I hope we, if I lived in your community, I would ask, and I knew your five kids and I grew up with you, I'd ask just as much about Parker as I would any of the other kids in your family, and I wouldn't stop talking about him. I'd ask, you know, how's his marriage doing? Do they plan on having kids? What's his career? Just the same. To me, that's just a measure of respect. That's not that's just what we do as human families. We're interested in other people and what they're doing. And I assume you'd be glad to talk to Parker about Parker to anybody that asked about Parker because you're proud of him. Yeah, we're very proud of him and we're happy to talk about it. And I think what you just said is good advice for any of your listeners that are on this path. Um, are there things... Are there things I haven't asked or part of your essay that you'd like to make sure our listeners are aware of? There are three or four things that I mentioned in my essay that I think we can do as individuals, regardless of what the church does institutionally. And those recommendations are, are absolutely meant for LDS, active LDS people who are struggling with trying to figure out how to navigate uh, this issue. And there are three or four recommendations that I a little bit sheepishly make to the church as an institution. Good. <laughs> Even though... We I don't mean, usually do that. We don't usually do that. So I'm not trying to be too directive. In, I, can, I feel like I can be more directive to other members than I can be to the church institutionally. However, I felt like they were different, and so I kind of categorized them in those those two ways. Um, and and as far as individuals, I, I really we've talked about it already quite a bit, but I think the idea of just at this point not just putting aside uh, that whole discussion one I talked about about the origins of homosexuality, and just be pragmatic and just know that the best thing to do is to love and accept people and and let the Lord work out the rest of it. Um, 
I think I think that that's one of the things that uh, from my essay that I hope people will take take away individually. Do you want to share any of those institutional suggestions? One of them is I I think that the church needs to be really careful in the way that they um, sometimes. It feels to me like in 2012, when the church launched the website that's specific about LGBTQ or same-sex attraction, that that was kind of the first time that the church kind of officially acknowledged that that uh, same-sex attraction is not a learned behavior, and that there's no sin in being LGBTQ. The sin is in acting out on being LGBTQ. And that, back in 2012, what, eight years ago, is when they first kind of started to move down that road. But it's kind of, sometimes it's one step forward and two steps back, or two steps forward and one step back. Recently, just a few weeks ago, and I write about this in my essay, there was an email sent out by the church um, to all its members, or at least a lot of members, because I have lots of friends who got the same email. And there were two, at least two versions of the email, depending on how old you are. So I got the version that the headline said, uh, having the Savior help you overcome things. And in the copy, the, uh, the, the one, one of the things that it said was, if you're overcome, if you uh, are trying to overcome challenges like, like aging, and kind of because I think I'm in my 60s, so I got that version. But I know a young person who got the version that said, if you're trying to overcome something like same-sex attraction. And, and I, th- I think what happens is we have to pick, as a church, we have to pick one side or the other. If, if we acknowledge that people, it's not learned behavior and there's no sin in being LGBTQ, then we have to stop saying institutionally that it's something we need to overcome. And that, that was the message of the email. If you, if you need help overcoming this, then click here and watch this little video. But saying that it's something that needs to be overcome is very different than acknowledging that it is what it is and our expectation is that you'll be celibate or enter into a heterosexual marriage anyway. Those are two different things. I know that's subtle, and maybe it sounds like I'm splitting hairs, but I feel like there's institutionally there's not enough thought given to, to these mixed messages, and what that does is it hurts young people and leads to despair and suicide and things that we just not, ought not to be accepting in this space. And so I think... I think the church needs to do a better job of making sure that they're really clear in their communications because it's such a delicate issue. That's a really good example, Jack. Um, I'm glad you pointed that one out because to to do better in that space doesn't require a change of doctrine. It's really kind of owning our current teachings that sexual orientation is not a choice. And so overcoming same-sex attraction... puts the burden back on the person sort of overcome this or become straight. And I think that leads to incredible shame and self-loathing and 
hyper-religiosity and making deals with God. And then when you're still LGBTQ, it leads to feelings of lost hope. And that's the thing that no one wants to, we don't want anybody to lose hope. One of the chapters I've written in this book that I've written is the role of the atonement of Jesus Christ. And it's and it's fascinating to hear LGBTQ people talk about the role of the atonement. It's a it's an application of the role of atonement I've never considered, but it's largely about you know instead of using the atonement to take this away from me, heal, using the atonement to heal my broken heart hmm. and give me hope. Um, so it's not to take away; it's to be able to live with, in a healthy way, this part of about them, and not look upon this part of about them as something that needs correcting or something that is should be carved out of them if they could. Because that's just, it's like being left-handed and we're asking you to become right-handed. Yes. And, and, and I like that you said that you can be clear about what the expectation is. Um, if, the, if the expectation is what it is, then just be clear that that's the expectation. But the idea of, of, of overcoming and... and uh, Choosing a different path and getting back into the fold by, you know, changing your orientation just doesn't make sense anymore to talk about it that way. Yeah, we'd never have the word, you know, straight help you overcome being straight. Right, right. <laughs> you know, so I think we need to put everybody on the same moral footing um, and invite everybody equally, put them on the same moral footing. Other examples that come to mind you'd like to share? I should have brought my... <laughs> essay. <laughs> it's a great essay. And the goal of this podcast is partly to connect people to your essay. We're going to link two in the podcast. So if any of you, you can just scroll down your episode description and you can link directly to the essay. And I encourage people to read it because Jack's just got a great heart and is is trying to do the very best job he can, like many of us, to be a committed Latter-day Saint and and be committed to his baptism covenants to mourn, bear, and comfort for LGBTQ people and and his role that um, as a father of a gay son, you have unique responsibility to know best in many ways for your son. I think that's part of the core teaching of our church is that parents often receive personal revelation for their children um, that is that is just something that's part of their divine role as parents. And we should honor the feelings you have about your son Parker and about his path. We shouldn't judge you for having a feeling about the best path for Parker and sort of, you know, say that you're not doing this right as a LDS parent. Yeah, exactly. Um, that reminded me of, uh, there's, there is one thing in my essay that um, some members of the church may think is a little bold, <laughs> maybe too bold, I don't know. But I, I kind of make what I think is my case for being able to one day accept faithful, legally wed, same-sex couples in full fellowship without changing doctrine. And probably church members think, well, there's no way. That's impossible without changing doctrine. But going back to what we talked about a few minutes ago about this, this covenant path idea, 
I don't think we have to change anything having to do with the doctrine of the covenant path and what leads to what we believe is exaltation and eternal life with our families. There's nothing about that doctrine that needs to change in order for us to realize that it's an eternal path and perhaps not everybody will enjoy the same covenant opportunities in this life. So while again, it may seem like heresy in some people's minds, I really believe that there is a path forward if the Lord ever chooses to inspire our leaders to make that change. I think that change could actually come without compromising doctrine. And I know that's kind of maybe too bold, but I try to explain why I feel that way in my essay. And you do it so kindly, um, and you do it in your essay so kindly. I, I think it's appropriate to talk about possible ways forward. I think it's back to chapter 40. I think most Latter-day Saints, and I think our leaders would probably say the restoration is an ongoing process. It feels like there's more work to do in this space. And um, I think it's okay for people in a in a way that, yeah, I'm still supporting our leaders. They got, they, it's their responsibility to make this decision. I don't know God's will, um, but here are some ideas. Um, I think on how a path forward, um, as I continue to, s- to sustain support the current path, I think we've, I think to me that's a faithful position as a Latter-day Saint, and we need to keep. If it's back to the purity test, <laughs> yeah. If you being open with some of your thoughts about a path forward, for in our church, um, we don't want to lose you, Jack, because we're worse off if we lost you and your wife and your whole family because you have some feelings about a path forward. So that's kind of a hope that we just create more space for all of us. To me, um, you know, one heart and one mind, that scripture in Moses doesn't mean we have all the same uniform feelings. We just all want to help people come into Christ through our church. That is the core reason we're here on earth is to come into Christ and our church is a means to do that. And um, but we all may have a little bit different feelings on the best way to do that. And we may have unique roles in helping individual people come into Christ that are unique to our personal gifts and personal ministry. And so I think we shouldn't be triggered when we hear someone that maybe suggests that things could change down the road. I think it's okay to look in the rearview mirror and recognize that things have changed historically. And that is, seems to be part of the ongoing restoration. Yeah. And, and you know, the, the Savior had a lot of ideas that were kind of counterintuitive in his day, didn't he? Like, he did. He, he's the one who said that uh, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. He's the one that said we should leave the 90 and 9 and go find the one who's who has strayed. I mean, a lot of the things that he taught um, were certainly counterintuitive to to the leaders of the church at that time. And so I'm not suggesting that, I'm not trying to draw a parallel between current church leadership and the Pharisees and Sadducees of, of Christ's day. I'm not trying to draw that comparison. I'm simply saying that being open to ideas that 
may at first seem counterintuitive, may in fact not be as counterintuitive once they've been explored more and talked about more and, and the Spirit has had an opportunity to, to soften people's hearts and to have people look at things in a different way. Thank you, Jack. Um, I think that's a good, just an ending comment. Um, so, so well done. I'll just say a couple more remarks, and if you have anything else you want to say, but I really want you know people to go to jackhadley.com. We'll link in the podcast copy and and read this essay. It's very, very thoughtful. Um, and you've just spent over a year, I believe, pouring your heart into these thoughts. And I think lots of LDS parents of LGBTQ um, are doing the same thing because there's not sort of a roadmap. There's not a lesson manual that says, okay, this is how you do it. You've got LGBTQ children. And so I think you've had to rely on personal revelation, a lot of meditation and prayer. And I think um, sharing what you've learned in your family experience helps others. And so thanks just for what you're doing. I'm, I'm glad you officiated the wedding. I love your perspective. I did this because of my role to keep our family circled together. And the message that sends about the importance of family for the Hadley family. And I'm just thinking of your future grandchildren, your children, and the principles that you directly teach um, when you do that, that the family is, is number one. And we're going to do everything we can to keep the family circled together. And we're going to just leave everything else at the Savior's feet. I think that's relieving for LDS parents. And so thank you for being on the podcast. Any final comments, Jack? No, but thank you, Richard, for inviting me. My wife and I have uh, taken a lot of, have received a lot of strength just by listening to you over this last year. I, uh, Before we got started here, you you asked how I had heard about the podcast, and I mentioned that, that my wife first uh, saw something about it on social media. And so she was doing the dishes one day and had it on the one of your episodes on going on the iPad and, and I walked through the room and I said, what are you listening to? And, and, uh, we listened to one of your episodes. This was about a year ago. And since then, that's been a great, uh, source of strength for us just to, to hear the way that, that you, um, to talk about these issues and just your, your kind and gentle way of, of being fair and, and having these discussions. So I was honored uh, that you had asked me to come. Thank you. Thank you, Jack. And I'm glad you and your wife have listened. And it's really the guests that are like you, um, that are the real heroes of this podcast to bravely share what they're learning about this space, or if they're in this space, if they're LGBT, to share their own lived experiences. And thank you, our listeners, for all you're doing to make the podcast work and share it with others. And um, this is Richard Osler and my friend Jack Hadley signing off on another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love. Mm-hmm.